to another episode of Thompson Hines Environmental Laws Podcast. This is environmental law, so of course we needed another acronym. LAWS, it stands for Land, Air, Water, and Safety. And that's exactly what we talk about on this podcast. In our podcast episodes, we cover current topics in environmental and health and safety laws in the United States from the perspective of Thompson Hine attorneys, the regulated community, regulators, and the occasional special guest. We know you're busy, so our goal is to provide practical and efficient insight to you on timely EHS topics. So hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Tasha Marigold, and I'm an associate in Thompson Hines Environmental Practice Group. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Heidi Friedman. Heidi is a partner in Thompson Hines Environmental Practice Group. She probably doesn't require an introduction to most of our listeners, but just in case, I'll quickly share that Heidi has been practicing environmental law for nearly 25 years. Sorry, I let the cat out of the bag, Heidi. Thanks. She focuses her practice on environmental health and safety counseling in business, regulatory and legislative matters, environmental and toxic tort litigation, environmental enforcement actions, site remediation, product stewardship, and compliance with environmental regulations. Is there anything she doesn't do on the EHS front? I don't think so. Heidi has been recognized as a super lawyer, an Ohio super lawyer, top ranked by Chambers USA, and identified as one of the best lawyers in America for nearly 16 years. Heidi was also recently selected as a fellow by the American College of Environmental Lawyers. If I listed all of Heidi's many, many accolades and distinctions as an EHS attorney, we would be here all day, so I won't do that. Instead, we'll jump right into today's topic. Heidi and I will be discussing a legal icon and American treasure who I'm sure is familiar to you all, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In light of Justice Ginsburg's recent passing, we wanted to dedicate a podcast to talking about her legacy in the area of environmental law. RBG is known for so many things, but not many focus on her impact in this area. So we're very lucky to have such an environmental law expert and one of RBG's biggest fans here to talk with us about this today. Heidi, welcome to the Environmental Laws Podcast. So fun to be here and talk to you about my favorite person. Well, as I just mentioned, as you just said, uh, RBG is, um, you're a huge fan of RBGs. So can you tell us a little bit about um, why you're such a huge fan of RBGs and, and what drew you to her? Absolutely. So RBG, I was appointed to the Supreme Court about the time I graduated from law school, since you already let the cat out of the bag. I was a child prodigy. Right. And, you know, she's a tiny Jewish lawyer. So like it or not, those are three of my characteristics. And and I, I think what really drew me to her at that time and continues to draw me to her was, you know, she's so, somewhat multifaceted, right? So she was also very dedicated to her children and to her husband, which are important things to me. She found time to work out. Um, there's some great videos of her, her working out, which I, I think is a good balance. But she was someone who did not accept the status quo for what it was. She really lived, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. And um, I just, these are all qualities I admire um, and I achieve, uh, aspire to achieve, I would say. And in fact, Sometimes I, I take it to another level with her. We just did a tribute for a national bar that I'm involved with, and I actually dressed in my full RBG garb. And anyone that visits my home office or my office here, I have my RBG pillow and mug that you got me, actually, and other things as well. So that's probably a, a good enough explanation. Well, I'm very sad that you didn't wear the RBG costume for this podcast, but I appreciate why you didn't. It's probably a little bit difficult to walk in, you know, the full-length robe. And as you said, RBG is certainly um, a, a tiny Jewish, Jewish lawyer with a powerful punch, just like you. So I understand why that draws you to her. So I'm wondering if, you, and you sort of touched on this, but I'm wondering if you could tell us more about what you think um, Justice, the late Justice Ginsburg represents for female attorneys. 
It, absolutely. I think it's important to understand sort of the framework we're talking about. So look at it this way. When, when Justice Ginsburg was born in 1933, 4% of the federal judges were female. When she was appointed to the D.C. Um, Circuit Court of Appeals by President Carter in 1980, 5.3% of the federal judges were female. And when she got to the Supreme Court in 1993, only 10%. And today, you know, 27 years later, we're literally at 27%. So, so we're at a foundational situation where, in terms of gender in the profession, it's grown, but not at the rate you would expect it to be when 50% of the population is women. And, and she still was only the second female to be appointed to the to the Supreme Court. But in, in, in you know, addition to that, I would say that she was one of nine women at Harvard Law. Now we at least see 50% of women um, in uh, law school classes, although the statistics of women achieving equity partner and certainly um, general counsel positions and the like, we can do a whole other podcast on, on what we're going to do about that problem. But she launched the ACLU, the ACLU Women's Rights Project. Her granddaughter works there. She was one of Forbes' most powerful women for seven years in a running. And, and I could just kind of go on and on. And so we have sort of the um, general framework of these sad statistics that have continued to grow. And what she did was try to literally pave the way so more women in the profession can succeed. And I think there's very few female lawyers that I speak to who do not admire her and understand the impact she had on gender in the profession. Yeah, I think you're right. She's absolutely broken down a lot of barriers for, for women lawyers in the profession. And you going through some of those stats, it really just speaks to how hard of a, how tough of a path that was for her and how much she did for, for women in the profession. So now I'd like to, to parry a little bit and talk a bit about why RBG has become such an American icon. Why do you think that is? It's an interesting question. You know, I think, like I mentioned a minute ago, I've participated in a couple of tributes for her, and she really does have universal impact, politics aside. And, you know, think about the lace collar. Now her, her lace collar, you know, there's dog costumes, there's earrings, there's, you know, name it. It's just everywhere. And to me, that kind of is a symbol of her universal impact. She also is an example of how two people with differing views can get together, which I think is something we need a whole lot more of these days. And I'm referring to her very special relationship with Justice Scalia. Bless her. Bless her, right? She was on opposite ends of the spectrum, opposite ends of the spectrum, but they became friends over their mutual love for opera. So I feel like all of us could, you know, be better and do better if we try to find common ground with people we may disagree with on, on other things, be it legal or, or otherwise. And, and so, and then she's, you know, special to people for, she actually played a, a bigger role in, in things beyond gender, and we'll talk about the environmental aspect. But I would also say that she has pay, played a big impact on same-sex marriage. And although she was not the author of that you know, very important opinion, she offered some very key questions during oral argument that I know folks found to be very impactful. And she was actually the first Supreme Court justice to perform a same-sex marriage ceremony in 2003, actually, to the executive director of the Kennedy Center at the time. So, you know, it's just really this universal impact that I think has made her the icon that she is today. That's amazing. I didn't know that about um, her being the first first justice to to uh, officiate a same sex marriage. That's that's fantastic, and it certainly. I mean, it 
it echoes what we all know about RBG, which was she fought for people who were underrepresented and who didn't have maybe as much power as they should have in our society. So she definitely is an American icon for all of her efforts on that front. Absolutely. I have lots of fun facts, but we'll try We'll try to fit a few more in today. <laughs> we'll sprinkle them out throughout exactly. the episode. Stay exactly. tuned, folks. Lots more to come. Exactly. So you touched on this, and I would like to go ahead and talk about that now, um, her environmental legacy. So as you said, she was appointed to the court in 1993, only the second woman been there. She was there quite a, a long time. So what could you tell us more about what her um, impact in the area of environmental law was? Absolutely. So she actually played a you know, a decent role. She was a, an advocate for the environment. I, I would say looking at it very high level, Ruth Bader Ginsburg definitely believed in the role of the federal government to regulate. She combined it with a very basic perspective that we need to look at the intent of the statutes and regulations that we're trying to apply. And she worked very hard at that. And she also felt that we need to read the environmental statutes to be protective of the media they were trying to protect, like clean air, clean water, all of those. That was very important to her. And, and she wanted to understand the purpose behind them. Believe it or not, though, she was also known as a pro-business justice, and she had a pretty good reputation for that, which is really one of the reasons she was confirmed so easily. She was actually confirmed 96 to 3, and based on the fact that Judge Barrett was confirmed yesterday as we're sitting here with such a divided Senate, it's hard to believe that anyone was confirmed with nine, and by 96 to 3, but that just, again, goes back to her Justice Ginsburg's, Ginsburg's universal acceptance and, you know, the, the the fact that she was really across the spectrum, although her politics may have been liberal, she was somebody who applied the law and the facts as she read them. And she wrote very few of the key environmental decisions, but she wrote some, and we'll talk about those. She joined the majority of several key decisions, and she actually had some interesting dissents in, in two of the circle cases, in fact, that I think are probably two of the biggest circle cases that impact our practice today. So she some, I think people would have originally, if you ask them, say, oh, she just must have applied a liberal view to environmental law. And I, and I think you'll find that's not always the case. Well, you you, uh, you started to get ahead of us talking about the circle cases. We'll save that that fun for the last, and we'll start with uh, some of the the, uh, the bigger ticket items here and go into to climate change and Clean Air Act cases. Did she have any you know, big decisions in that area, and what do you think her thoughts were about climate change? Sure. So I would say I was looking up a little bit about Justice Ginsburg and climate change generally, and I found she spoke at an event in January. I'm sorry, December, actually. And she cited the um, Swedish teen climate activist Greta Thunberg as one of the future leaders in the world, giving her hope. So I think that gives you an idea definitely of, of her current perspective, at least on that. And, and, you know, again, she is looking at a young woman as a future leader. So just think of that in the context of Justice Ginsburg and all she stood for. But I would say I'll, I'll mention two cases in this front. In 2007, in what was really the Supreme Court's first climate change case, Massachusetts versus EPA, uh, Justice Ginsburg just joined Justice Stevens' majority opinion in that case. And what that case really did was solidify EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases from auto tailpipes. 
And it really led to the Obama administration beginning to regulate carbon dioxide from cars and trucks for the very first time. So that's why that's kind of seen as the pivotal key decision. And the court there found that the state of Massachusetts indeed had standing to sue EPA here over damage caused to its state by global warming. And the court rejected EPA's argument that the Clean Air Act was not meant to refer to carbon emissions, and that EPA, in fact, if they didn't want to do that, had to demonstrate why these greenhouse gas emissions were not contributing to climate change. So it was it was sort of seen as the pivotal key, key case. And then she, Justice Ginsburg went on to author a decision about four years later in AEP versus Connecticut. And in there, she relied completely on the Massachusetts versus EPA case. And she found there, and the court found there, she wrote the opinion, that the Clean Air Act, in fact, displaces the federal common law rights to sue over greenhouse gases. And so someone couldn't sue under the federal common law claim of nuisance. And instead, EPA had had the right instead to regulate under the Clean Air Act itself. And so therefore, in that case, and in the opinion that she wrote, she found that the private parties and the states involved could in fact not sue the power companies for contribution to climate change under the federal common law. And I would say environmentalists really saw this decision as just further confirmation that the federal government should and can be acting on climate change. Definitely two uh, very large landmark climate change uh, decisions. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see how the new makeup of the court impacts those decisions, if any. Although I think, as you sort of touched on at the beginning, I think many people will be surprised by her positions on some of those cases, even though there were nuggets um, for the environmental groups to pull out of it. Like you said, that they were, she was really cementing the Clean Air Act's ability to regulate greenhouse gases. There are certainly some other things in those opinions that maybe weren't as environmentally friendly. So again, striking that balance with her being, you know, working hard to um, to uphold the intention of those statutes, but also having sort of a practical, balanced approach in some ways. So I think those two decisions really speak to that. Absolutely. Are, are there any other big Clean Air Act cases you want to talk about with the RBG? Or? Clean Air Act's my least favorite statutes, just for the record. <laughs> but... Um, There are a couple others that I think are probably worth talking about, especially because she did author two other fairly significant Clean Air Act decisions, and since she'd authored them, I think it's probably worth us talking about about them. First of all, in 2003, she authored the Alaska Department of Conservation versus EPA case, where she found in that, the court found, and she wrote, that EPA has the authority to overrule a state agency's decision that a company is, in fact, using backed or best available control technology to prevent um, pollution. And this is an interesting case, actually, because the state of Alaska had actually approved a facility's PSD permit, so a a permit of significant difference for them to to build or expand a facility. And there was a complex analysis that I won't bore everybody with about nitrogen oxide and all of that involved. But, But Alaska had already agreed. And what happened there is EPA said, no, Alaska, you are acting unreasonably. We don't think that that is the best available 
technology there. And they were able to um, EPA stop construction of the facility. And basically, this opinion validated EPA's ability to do that. So it was it was definitely a, a federal over state type of, of position under the Clean Air Act. And, and then the other one that I'd mention, because Justice Ginsburg authored the decision was the EPA versus EME Homer City generation case um, in 2014. And what this did is really revive the Obama administration's effort to regulate air pollution that drifts across state, straight, state lines. It was also probably interesting, fun fact, this um, revised Kavanaugh's D.C. Circuit opinion. So now, now it was probably now with Kavanaugh on the court, but it was the only opinion, I think, of, of Kavanaugh's that was actually overturned. And, and what was found in this opinion is that if a state implementation plan and states put these plans together to attain and maintain certain air quality standards, and if a state's plan is determined to be insufficient, EPA, again, has an absolute mandate to create and enforce a federal implementation plan unless the state steps up and revises its plan. And so there's a complex analysis relating to the transporter rule and upwind and all of that, and, and we won't get into all of that today. But again, along the lines of, you know, giving EPA a lot of control to enforce the provisions of the Clean Air Act and, and understanding or trying to at least understand and interpret the meaning behind and the intent behind that act. Yeah, there she goes again, just really digging into the purpose <laughs> and intent of the statute. I wonder if Justice Kavanaugh ever asked her about that when he came to the court about her overturning that decision. I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall for that one. <laughs> Interesting. The, the first case that you mentioned there, Alaska, I actually looked at that case uh, several times for Devin Berry, another partner in our office who, as you know, does a lot more clean air act work than me, certainly. So, bless him. Uh, yeah, bless him. <laughs> so that is a, a pivotal decision, definitely, that uh, has impact, impacted the area of clean air act law. So Although I think you are more of a Clean Air Act expert than you're giving yourself credit for, we'll switch topics here and we'll jump over to one of my favorites, the Clean Water Act. Does Justice, Justice Ginsburg excuse me, have any big Clean Water Act decisions in her arsenal? She, she has been involved in, in some there, and I think what's interesting there is I will admit there, she definitely has a much more liberal record. It was, is she really there votes in favor of broad Clean Water Act jurisdiction as questions came up. So I'll mention a couple of, of cases there in, they call it the Swamp case, if you, if you uh, look it up, at the Solid Waste Agency of Northern Cook County versus U.S., and from 2001, um, Stevens wrote a dissent there that Justice Ginsburg joined. And the dissent really argued for broad interpretation of the waters of the U.S. as compared to the majority opinion in that case. So the majority found that the Clean Water Act does not actually extend to isolated wetlands and abandoned sand and gravel pits because they were not navigable or easily made so. So, so that was kind of the, the key language. And, and what the dissent said, you know, Stevens and, and Ginsburg there, is that they absolutely, they were subject to federal jurisdictions, these wet wetlands. It's not truly navigable waters. And we really need to read the Clean Water Act this way to ensure its purpose of protecting the nation's waters is, is followed. And so that was kind of the, the first opinion that she provided her input on the Clean Water Act. That's followed by her joining, Justice Ginsburg joining um, Justin Stevens' minority opinion in R R Rapanos. I always 
pronounce that horribly, so we'll just leave it at that. Which we came know out, where you're going. <laughs> it, which came out in 2006. And there, it was interesting because there really wasn't a majority. There was a plurality opinion at best. But Ginsburg and Stevens, once again, side by side, the dynamic duo there. And there, the main issue was, again, wetlands were adjacent to tributaries of what were definitely navigable waters. And Scalia, her friend Scalia, issued the plurality opinion and said that the waters really needed to be relatively permanent in order for them to be regulated under the Clean Air Act. Kennedy issued his own opinion that said we need a significant nexus. And then Ginsburg and Stephen chimed in that's, and said that the focus was actually on the ecological value of the wetlands and if they were entwined with the ecosystem of the waterways. And so, again, they really just wanted more deference in determining that these wetlands should actually be regulated under the Clean Water Act. So I would say that those two kind of lay the foundation of where she's going, and then she certainly joined the majority opinion in the Maui case last year, you know, which everyone knows what that is by now, but that case held the discharges to groundwater can actually be regulated by the Clean Water Act if they are functionally equivalent of a direct discharge, and, and she joined that majority opinion. So it's easy to see a theme here on that, and as we know, a lot of these questions are expected to reach the high court again now without Justice Ginsburg there. So it'll be interesting to, to see where things go from here. Yeah, it certainly will. And um, I think you're right that she really sort of set the stage for her joining the, the Maui decision in joining the, the dissent and the concur or the the, the dissents in um, in Swank and then uh, the minority opinion in, in Rapanos, sort of really digging into uh, Congress's intent when they passed the Clean Water Act and what were they trying to do and um, how can we treat the the statute as a as a more living document to make sure that those uh, purposes were fulfilled. So um, we won't go through all of the environmental statutes today. Um, <laughs> I'm going to uh, switch courses here and talk about our most notable environmental ruling. What do you think that might be? For me, I would say that one is Friends of the Earth versus Laidlaw Environmental that came out in 2000, I think it was. And the reason I think that that is significant is, is really for the concept of standing that it brings. But before I get to that... There we had a situation where Friends of Earth is a, a, a citizens group and filing a claim on, on behalf of um, a number of citizens and their members, and they were filing um, for civil penalties under the Clean Water Act for an exceedance that a facility had under its NPDES permit. And what was interesting is by, by the time between the case was initially filed and then, you know, come up for resolution, the facility has decided to close. And so the argument was, this is moot. We don't need to pay any civil penalties under the citizen suit provisions of the Clean Water Act because we've stopped operating. So what's the problem? Um, and so the, we, we won't, I won't bore you with all the lower court decisions on that, but um, suffice it to say that the Supreme Court and Justice Ginsburg authored this opinion. She found that a defendant's voluntary cessation of this unlawful conduct does not make a case moot. And in fact, she said civil penalties do more than promote immediate compliance. They deter future violations. And so not only did she allow these penalties to stand, even though the facility had closed, more importantly, she also touched on the key question of whether the citizens group, Friends of the Earth, had standing to bring the claim in the first place. We do a lot of citizens um, suit litigation, and one of the key issues is always standing. And there she found that it, in fact, 
Friends of Earth certainly did have standing to bring suit on behalf of the members because they had suffered injury effect, that's the term of art, because the NPDES permit exceedances had in fact impacted their quote, recreational aesthetic and economic interests. And, and that's really, really important because that case is cited all the time to give citizens group standing in, in these citizens, in these um, citizen suits. And, you know, a sort of quick aside, many of the key statutes have provisions for citizens to bring claims when the government is not doing, you know, allegedly not doing what it's supposed to be doing. And as we see um, deregulation as we have, there has been more citizen suits. On, and we'll probably do a podcast on that coming up shortly. So I'll leave the rest of that for another day. But, but I, I think her standing decision there is pretty significant. We'll have to have you as a guest on that podcast as well <laughs> so that you can talk about this pivotal standing decision. I agree with you. Always cited in uh, citizen suit cases. Definitely a big one. So sort of relatedly, I'm wondering what you think RBG's biggest dissent or dissents are. Yeah, so, so I think the other thing she'd probably be most famous for is her dissents, right? So the term is even dissent caller, and a lot of people say scholars, Supreme Court scholars, people much smarter than me, have talked a lot about the fact that her her dissents have sort of provided guidance for future policy and all of that. So I, I think I think that they're important to look at. The two that I'm going to mention, um, she authored dissents in two pretty critical CERCLA cases. The first one was in the Cooper Industry versus Avial decision back in 2004. And, and there, you know, without getting into too many details related to whether you could bring a contribution claim under both Section 107 and 113 or what was prohibited. And in fact, even though the court said that you had to bring it, you know, we had a limited right of contribution, Justice Ginsburg disagreed with that. She found, she wanted it to be easier to seek contribution claims for voluntary clean cleanups and felt that responsible parties should pay. So she instead in her, her in her dissent basically said that there's an implied right of contribution in section 107 of CERCLA and nothing in section 113 changed that. So it was this broad interpretation. And she continued along that theme in the Burlington Northern case in 2019 where she also authored a dissent. And there, it, that case is really famous for whether or not there is an intent to dispose under CERCLA. And even though the majority found that that is an important element under CERCLA, Justice Ginsburg argued that, in fact, it should be easier to have a range of liability. And what she argued is, in that case, the defendant should have known that its products, not its waste disposal, but its actual products, and if you're sending useful products, that's a key piece of Burlington Northern because you don't necessarily intend to dispose of something if you're sending a product. But Justice Ginsburg says, well, you know, those folks should know that their products were spilled and leaked in the transportation process and they should be held liable. So she had a very expansive view of CERCLA and it certainly highlights her principled stance on interpreting environmental laws to try to meet congressional intent. But I would tell her, tell you if she had her way, it'd be a lot easier to argue for a ranger liability under Burlington Northern or to bring a contribution claim under Cooper than it is today. 
those those dissents are fascinating, and they certainly speak more to her um, her goal of interpreting environmental statutes to the fullest extent possible, rather than her pro business approach. Although I guess depending on which client you're representing, perhaps being able to file a contribution claim a little bit easier might be pro business for that business, and the same if you know you're trying to argue someone arranged for a disposal there. So uh, that really is fascinating. This is true. I won't tell you if I agree with those or not. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I think I can guess. <laughs> I think some of you out there listening can too. Yes. So uh, I don't want to to close things out on RBG just, RBG just yet, but um, I'm hoping to sort of ask an, a couple questions about the court more generally. So um, now that Justice Ginsburg has passed, and uh, as you mentioned earlier, um, Justice Barrett, now I, I guess we say that, Justice Barrett has been confirmed on the court. I'm wondering um, what you think we can expect from the court now that it's a bit more conservative than it was with Justice Ginsburg. Yeah, that that's hard. <laughs> you know, I, I would say that it, it, it's interesting because there are a lot of scholars that say that Justice Ginsburg was the last pro-environmental justice on the court, interestingly. And I, I saw a statistic that said about 5% of the cases annually are environmental. I mean, I think we have years like last year where you have Atlantic Richfield and Maui and others that that make it a larger percentage. I personally think that 5% is really low because I think even though it may not be a decision on the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act like we're talking about today, so many cases have environmental aspects to As them. all cases, certainly. Exactly, exactly. There's a FOIA case, for example, that's going to go up this term in front of the Supreme Court, and that, that has an environmental component to it as well, actually. So I, I think it's really hard to predict what's going to happen. I will tell you, I think there's a lot of environmental issues coming down the pike, um, in my view, for whatever that's worth. Uh, the, the Trump administration certainly has tried to roll back Obama-era era vehicle emissions, water permitting, and other standards. This could reach the court. For example, the Trump administration earlier this year finalized a regulation that creates a much more narrow definition of federally protected waterways. We were obviously talking about Maui and all of that and, and, and some of those things. Legal experts say that it's it's on questionable ground as it is, especially because we only have that plurality opinion in Rapano. And so that could definitely come up. Challenges of, of this rule have already been filed by Democratic attorneys general, environmental groups, property activists, and the like. And then our favorite climate change, right? There's just a ton of cases out there. Cities, counties, states have sued fossil fuel companies in state courts in, in waves of litigation for climate um, change-related harms. Companies have tried to move these into federal court. I actually think I saw a decision that Chevron just succeeded in doing that in, in one of the climate change cases this morning. And, and the, the, what's going to happen to those is unknown, um, but I would expect that at some point those will make it up to the court. So I think we are looking towards a situation where you're going to have significant cases that impact all of the things we've already talked about coming up to the court again. And I, I don't really um, have a lot to say about Justice Barrett because I don't really think she has an environmental record right now. She was on the Seventh Circuit for a very short time, and you know part of it's been during a pandemic, so not much in terms of decisions. 
she certainly has a judicial philosophy that's a lot more conservative and, and one could argue potentially pro-business. I know she does not believe from her statements that judges are policymakers. So I think we can look at that. And, and she talked about the fact in her confirmation hearings that, you know, she's no scientist and doesn't have views on climate change. So I, I think we'll be looking for probably more conservative pro-business decisions coming out of the Supreme Court, maybe giving EPA less authority than it had previously under some of these cases, but I think um, too soon to tell. We'll, we'll know soon enough. Uh, it'll definitely be interesting to see what happens. And um, as you said, I think 5% environmental cases seems small, but maybe that's because we live and breathe environmental law every day. <laughs> all year round. So maybe that's why. All right. Well, so I guess as we sort of wind things down here, I'd like to know if you have any closing thoughts about RBG herself. Sure. Absolutely. One of my favorite quotes that she has said is, I would like to be remembered as someone who used whatever talent she had to the best of her ability. That's certainly what I try to do every day. I think, you know, that, is, you know, inspires me, inspires others. And she also said another favorite quote is, if I had any talent God could give me, it would be to be a great diva. And I think she certainly was a great diva. So I love pairing those two together um, in terms of, you know, the way she broke down barriers for women in the law and teaching all of us, men and women, that we should not accept that, which does not seem right. And we can use our advocacy skills, especially us lawyers, and use our power to make change. And so, so those are things we need to do. And even though she may have only touched on environmental law as a small piece of her role of the court in over 27 years, which is like, wow, right? Some of these decisions are foundational to the application of the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, and, and we'll certainly have continued application on our practice for, for years to come. And I love those quotes you just shared. I'd heard the first. I wasn't familiar with the second, <laughs> but I'm not surprised that you dug that one out. Uh, as we said at the outset, um, she's an absolute icon uh, generally as a justice on the court and as the second female justice on the court and absolutely uh, decided and or wrote some opinions and joined some dissents and joined some majority opinions that uh, left their mark on environmental law and that will continue to be a big part of our lives day in and day out as we practice environmental law. Thank you for joining us today and sharing so much insight about RBG herself and about her jurisprudence, as, uh, her environmental jurisprudence. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Absolutely. I could talk about RBG, one of my favorite people, with one of my favorite people. So that was a double bonus. So thanks for having me. Our pleasure. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, you can find Heidi's full contact information at thompsonhine.com. If you have any future topics for Thompson Hyde podcast episodes, contact Joel Eagle at joel.eagle at thompsonhine.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Thompson Hines Environmental Group, please visit thompsonhine.com. With approximately 400 lawyers in eight offices, Thompson Hine is a full-service business law firm recognized for innovation and client service. Our smart path approach provides clients with services that are predictable, efficient, and aligned with their short- and long-term strategic goals. And now I'll leave you with the best part of the podcast, the legal disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It provides general information and not legal advice or opinions regarding specific facts. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast without permission. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll join us soon for another episode of Thompson Hines Environmental Laws. Mm -hmm.